0: some strategies don't change. Today's guest, Daniel Coca, dives into his investment philosophy and why over the last 10 years it's stayed consistent. We dive into the way he thinks and how you can apply that within your own investing business. Let's get right to it. This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Steven Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. Today's episode is sponsored by Von Finch Capital. If you're interested in investing alongside me in the same type of real estate opportunities that I personally invest in, then head over to Von Finch Capital and join their private investor network. You can do so at vonfinch.com slash invest. Join me on that next deal. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Pesavento, and today I have Daniel Coca in the studio. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm doing well
1: soon. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, excited. Daniel's coming to us from uh, Nashville. Uh, where he's based out of, and he's the managing director at Elf Investing, a firm focused on institutional quality investments, and he's got an impressive track record. They've grown dramatically over the last decade, and we're going to be diving into a lot of the way that he thinks and his philosophy and how you can model some of those same things in your investing business, regardless of your on the operations side, the passive side, or just a business owner looking to grow yourself. You ready to dive into things? Let's do it. So before we get into business, you know, let's first start out by taking a look back at earlier in your life, what events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today?
1: It's a great question. I always think back to my father, who was a very, someone who really promoted education and hard work. And from a very young age, I thought the path to success and therefore happiness was paved by lots of education, hard work at big institutions. It probably wasn't until I was in the real world for a few years, 25, 26, 27, where, you know, I started to think a little bit differently. And that's part of what gave me the the courage, so to speak, to, to start Alpha you know, with, with my partners is, is really the transition. And so as I think back on things that defined my life and my trajectory, that, that's a big one. I would have never ended up New York City law firm, if it wasn't for the way my my parents raised me, but I also would never have made the jump to start a company. That's kind of my story, so to speak.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, right? How we learn these things when we're really young that if we follow this specific path and we go this direction, we're going to end up having the life that we want. And then when we get in that and we actually start experiencing and making some of those decisions ourselves, we're able to realize that there's actually other paths. That maybe are a path that fits us better or fits the direction we want to go. And that's where we get to that decision point. Or are we willing to go into that unknown to then go and create something that might be that better life we dream of? So what I'm curious about is you obviously started out working in that institutional or I should say that law firm space. And then you've since transitioned and grown this business over the past decade to be able to do the kind of deals you do. For for those listeners who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about Alpha Investing so that we can really dive into uh, the strategy from a perspective of understanding what you guys do and how that's different.
1: Yeah, sure. So Alpha Investing was a company born somewhat out of necessity, right? All, All the founders of the firm were very busy working professionals, right? I was an attorney, a partner was an accountant, other partners, a venture capitalist, entrepreneur, what have you. And we were trying to do the same thing that a lot of people are still trying to do today, which is find access to high quality real estate, private equity. So we could take money we have in our stock market accounts and, you know, push them into the real estate world. The challenge that everyone finds is that being able to invest with a group that has a billion dollar portfolio is not something you can do, you know, even if you're writing a hundred thousand dollar check, it's just not that interesting. And so... All of this was happening on the heels of crowdfunding and I was actually working on a lot of the, the venture deals behind the scenes at, at this time. And so I had a lot of good insight into how those businesses were set up and, and what they were set up to do. And at the end of the day, just didn't feel like they actually met the needs of the investor. The goal was about creating marketplaces and, and raising a lot of capital for a lot of sponsors. For us, you know, we're putting real estate deals together, but it's 10 or 12 a year. It's four or five partners that we have longstanding relationships with. And the goal of everything we're doing, and we can of course talk more about the very specific strategy, is trying to create this, this concept of alpha, right? You know, what, what our firms named after, right? And, and at the end of the day, you know, we do that in a number of ways, but you know, a few of them are, you know, partnering with with the right groups, looking at, you know, sub $50 million small middle market deals where We think we can find off-market opportunities, where we think there are pricing inefficiencies, where we believe we can partner with an institutional buyer and buy from a mom-and-pop seller. That's where you get to add value just through management expertise and whenever you can add value without spending money on a real estate deal, Uh, that's incredibly valuable. And so, at the end of the day, uh, what we wanted to create was a mechanism by which people like us could invest in real estate deals in the manner that we wanted to invest.
0: Yeah. And I think that's so cool to see how you've been able to create that, especially at a time where there was so much transition happening and people were starting to participate in crowdfunding and recognizing you know, what's available. And when people hear about crowdfunding, they often think about websites that you can go online and you can you know find access to these deals and you don't have any connection to the sponsor or really any connection even with that personal relationship with the company, that firm that you're finding that with. And I think that's one of the things that really has given the space a bad name in some ways, because without having that relationship, without having that experience with that company, you're not having the same type of investment dynamic that you would with a firm where you're You're knowing who is making those investment level decisions and finding a way to be able to invest alongside them. And so really, it sounds like the firm was really developed out of necessity because you couldn't find what it was that you were looking for personally. And and one of the ways to be able to do that is to be able to come together and invest as a collective. We have some very similar values there and really looking to partner with experienced sponsors and operators. So what is that value proposition? when you're going to a billion dollar player or an institutional operator like this, what is the value proposition that ends up getting your foot in the door and ends up allowing you to be able to invest and be able to place your investor's capital and your own capital into these deals?
1: Yeah, at, at the end of the day, in my opinion, real estate investing is about relationships and execution, right? And when we first started, our approach was much more about starting to build relationships. Uh, all the sponsors that we work with, you can actually trace back to a, a very small number of people. Most of them were attorneys that I worked with in New York. I, I worked in a capital markets practice that housed our the firm's REIT practice under the same umbrella. And the attorney who actually created the REIT structure was you know, the, the partner in that group. And so over the course of time, all those attorneys scattered to other firms and took on a bunch of sponsor clients and allowed me to basically go out and say, hey, this is exactly what I'm looking for as a sponsor. Who on your roster, you know, checks these boxes? Can I speak with them? And, and that's kind of how we started the process. Warm intro, build relationships. And we started out being gap equity, right? That one to maybe two and a half million dollars, like a little bit larger than a lot of sponsors want to syndicate to high net worths. You know, if they're going to do a a 955 or a 90-10 you know lpgp split you know sometimes you know, there's going to be one major lp and, and then a handful of smaller ones but that one to two and a half million was very valuable for a lot of firms that are looking at these sub 50 million dollar deals right a 50 million dollar deal at you know at 70 percent leverage right 15 million in equity and so you know in a world where you have a partner who can do 10 to 12 and another that can do one to three Uh, that's really where we fit in. And we spent a number of years, probably four or five, building up a track record with just providing this somewhat elusive, very attractive capital to to sponsors. And then over the course of time, as our our network grew, and we built out relationships and track records and, and proved that our asset management team is going to actually add value to the process, right? I think we've set up a system now where we're going to be the majority LP on any given transaction that we, that we invest in. And so the value proposition is a little bit different when, when you're in that position, right? It's not about you know the, the, the size of the check as much as it is about the kind of what we're bringing to the table, right? And so that's kind of been our, our evolution as a firm, so to speak.
0: And so when you were in that position, when you guys were you know, starting out and you were developing as a firm, you were placing those $1 to $3 million. Was that a single check and you were going with like an SPV model where you're raising the capital and managing the investors? So w- when you were going out and doing that, talk a little bit about what ended up leading you to being able to say to those sponsors and having them say yes we're interested in doing that when they're in a position where they need that capital right now and you haven't raised it yet
1: yeah the reality is we actually never engage with groups under the the idea that this is capital you need right now Uh, we typically spend three to six months vetting groups sometimes you know, to the extent that it's probably a bit annoying, right? But we want to take a deep dive, we want to get into the track record, we want to look at case studies, we want to have, you know, four or five conversations with principals and underwriting team and and just really understand and confirm that we're ultimately on the same page, right? And so it's only at that point that we actually start Looking at deals, right? And, and considering investments. So there's definitely a process leading up to
0: it. Yeah. And that process ends up putting you in a position where they know, like, and trust you, you know, like, and trust them. And you obviously have the confidence that you're going to be able to come through when that does happen. So, when it comes to growing a firm like this, what has been your investment philosophy beyond what we've talked about so far?
1: Yeah. So, I think an important thing to keep in mind, like when we started the firm, uh, you know, we needed to build a track record from scratch, right? I'm not a 55 year old guy who's, you know, been in real estate for 30 years, right? And, and neither are, are my partners. We're backed by a lot of people that, that check that box. But when we got out there, it was all about building a track record, right? And you know, understanding the, the landscape and our investment philosophy from day one is really predicated on need-based and residential assets, right? Uh, people need a place to live. They need a place to grow old. That's true in a good economy, also true in a bad economy. And if we circle back to 2015, which seems like you know an eternity from from now, you know the the rumblings around real estate recession, general economic recession, were all there. And so our focus really from day one has been downside protection. Now the interesting thing about downside protection is that you know know that you need it until you do, right? And it's part of the reason why our portfolios held up so well during COVID, it's because all the assets make sense on a cash basis, right? We haven't been dependent upon residual value or uh, appreciation in order for the deals we're in to ultimately make sense. Yeah.
0: And by focusing on those recession resistant assets, you've been able to continuously deliver even while things were growing. And now when things have contracted, even if it was for a short period of time, it's been able to stay strong. And that obviously gives people a lot of confidence. And how has that philosophy changed over time over the last six years since Alpha I has really been focused on doing what you guys do?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to believe, right, that we are at or near the end of this current real estate market cycle, right? And you'll talk to some people who think, you know, we're basically there or, you know, six to 12 months out. And you'll talk to people that, you know, think we're still three, four, five years out, right? And so I think I sit in the, in the latter camp, you know, meaning I think there's a, a, at least a few more, more years to run, right? But at the end of the day, the philosophy is actually very similar. And this is the question I want to take. What how we were thinking in 2015 is is really the same way we're, we're thinking now, you know, with the added qualification that there's probably even a little bit more emphasis on downside protection. We set a standard that any deal we invest in will be able to absorb at least 20 to 25 percent economic vacancy, assuming there's no rent growth during the the first year of ownership, right? And so that always gives us a strong downside buffer. And then you know we want to make sure that the the cash yield for whatever project we're working in makes sense now. We do a lot of, you know, light to mid-size value add, multifamily. We do a lot of affordable housing through a very unique partnership that, you know, generates double digit yield. We do a good bit of senior housing, assisted living, memory care, again, all lead-based residential, but an asset class that's very fragmented, tends to be higher cap rate acquisitions, better cash. Those are the types of things that we're gonna be looking for.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what ended up leading to any of that evolution, right? Like you've stayed with the exact same philosophy of focusing on properties that are going to be able to be secure regardless of what's going on in the economy. But what has led you to stay with that philosophy versus, you know, changing it as you've grown as a company?
1: Listen, real estate investing, particularly this type of small middle market investing is already on a relative basis very high right we're talking about you know projects where you're 2x in your money if not more in in three to five years right and so if that's your baseline uh, you don't take an approach where you say i need to to optimize my returns right and trying to you know, kind of maximize returns based on, on risk, right? You're trying to find projects that can generate you that 15% average return where you know that there's a, there's a strong downside protection, right? And so that's part of the reason why we haven't had to change it much is because it makes sense in a good economy. And it also makes sense in a bad economy. Now, listen, we're sitting here today seeing, you know, multifamily assets, for example, you know, eighties, nineties, vintage apartment buildings, you know, trade at sub four caps in, you know, smaller primary markets, right? And, and that doesn't always feel, you know, very comfortable, right? And if you believe that cap rates are going to continue to compress, you have to ask yourself at what point uh, is it just below a threshold where anything, you know, looks interesting and there are new deals. And so, you know, we will look at other asset classes. We do look at other deals, but we always circle back to, you know, the kind of the founding principles and the initial hierarchy. Caliber of the sponsor partner, you know, under, underlying fundamentals of the asset class and the markets that we're looking at, and if all those boxes are checked, you know, then we would consider, you know, an industrial deal, which is also very hard to find one that makes sense right now. Uh, a storage deal, what have you. Uh-huh. Uh, we do take comfort though in again knowing that people will always need a place to live, and you know, this kind of class B, particularly if you can create an elevated class B multifamily product. Uh, positions itself very nicely in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so, you know, I'm really curious, right? You guys have been able to grow, you know, in such a, a smart way. Uh, what role have strategic advisors or an investment committee played in your company's growth and the stability that you've had?
1: It's a it's a great question, and the short answer is, the people who have backed us and advised us have made all the difference, right? Because again, we were not this group of people with 30 years of of experience in the space, right? We've hired those people and they're part of the the team now, right? But when we first started, it was, you know me, you trust me, like, can you get behind what I'm doing? And this is why it makes sense to to say yes, right? And so, you know, there are a lot of different groups that have helped us along the way, whether it was sponsors who said, listen, I'll give you some one way, I'll let you go out and know i'll give you a two million dollar allocation into my deal even though i don't need it with the hope that you're going to come back to me three or four years later with a 10 million dollar check right those types of relationships Mm -hmm. to you know the groups that invested in our firm who you know let us work out of their office gave us guidance on you know how to build a business how to build a culture because because what we're doing here you know we're not just building a real estate investment company we're also building you know alpha investment right and and you know, typically those are aligned, but they're not always identical, right? And so, having advisors who have kind of been through that that process already uh, re- really makes all the difference. And and you know, some of the biggest ones in particular is a group uh, in Los Angeles called Wedgwood Enterprises. They're one of the largest fix and flippers and hard money lenders, vertically integrated in in all of that that space. You know, they they backed us. They gave us. Uh, office space in, in their building in uh, in Redondo Beach, ton of guidance to, to me and my partners. Those types of things have, have been very valuable in uh, our firm's growth for sure.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because sometimes people end up looking to companies that have been successful and they think, wow, how were they able to do that, right? And it definitely, it's grit and definitely, it's perseverance and definitely, it's all the things that we know go into creating a phenomenal business. But in part, it's going out and finding great people who you can learn from so that you can end up quickly being able to model what's already been successful. And in some ways, it's through those relationships more so than logic. It's through those relationships that end up leading you to have an opportunity to be able to grow your business because Without those opportunities to raise on deals that they may not have needed you on, you would have had an opportunity to be able to develop the kind of relationship that you now have or be able to develop the investor relations that you currently have that only come from actually doing deals. And so that is such a big piece. And what I'm really curious about is what do you recommend to others who are developing in their own business, in their own career, who are looking to find you know, potential members or uh, mentors, people who are going to be able to work with them and alongside them in their company for you know mutual growth across the board.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and you know, building mentor-mentee relationships are very important. I'm someone that believes at any given time you should have both you know a mentor and a mentee, right? And. You know, you build those relationships over time, in the same way that you build your your track record at a firm like ours. You can't do it in six months or twelve months. It it, it takes time. That's just how how it works, right? And so, you know, similarly, you know, some of the the mentors in our group, you know, professors that you know my my partners had uh, TA'd for in, in business school, or that we had met, you know, professionally. Your folks I met at the law firm, and people have introduced me to, I'm just kind of working through. Just being a person who says, hey, like, I value having smart people around. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I'm here to take advice. I'm interested in learning. And I'm excited about doing something that's a little bit different than, you know, what everyone else around is doing.
0: Yeah, that's it's such good advice. And it's such a good reminder that we don't do it on our own. It really is a collective of being able to learn and leverage the thoughts and beliefs of others for us to be able to grow our own. So I'm curious, like, what are you seeing that's happening in the market right now when it comes to going out and acquiring deals and how should investors, you know, be looking at the market that we're working in right now in comparison when, with what we've been experiencing over the last couple of years, it's all relative, but I'd love to get your take on that.
1: Yeah. My, my initial thought is people are acting crazy right now, right? You know, it, it, and it seems crazy to say that. Because I think back to, to 2017, and I, I probably felt the same way then, right? And no one really knows how much room there is to run. I don't think we've seen a marketed deal in 18 months that has made sense. Everything we're investing in is off-market. Now, it's important to know that there are two types of off-market. There's the you know lightly marketed, where it goes out to a handful of groups, and there's still some bidding going on, and there's the true off-market. And, and we're obviously... You know, looking for the, the true off-market deal, the acquisition basis has to to make sense, right? You know, if a, an asset is you know makes sense at fifty million, you can't pay fifty-eight and make the numbers work, right? And and that seems like a huge jump, but you know, there's a lot of foreign capital that has lower return requirements. Ten thirty ones through DSPs have become very popular. A lot of cheap capital out there, dry powder in real estate private equity, and so. You know, you got to be kind of mindful of, of all of that, right? And you need to pick partners that, you know, can add value in ways beyond just what did I buy it for and, and what can I sell it for? And that means, you know, how have they execute You know, the groups that we work with on a regular basis have a long track record of successfully implementing nearly identical business plans in, you know, the same or, or similar markets and they're able to do over time the exact same thing to the point that we can get comfortable investing with them in in this environment knowing that you know they've been been doing it for for years.
0: Yeah, being able to see that they've already succeeded at doing it so many times over and over again knowing that they understand that business model in and out means that you can compress some of the variables and still feel comfortable knowing that you're going to come out the other end in a secure place with the likelihood being you know nearly the same that the the return structure is going to be equal and that's super super important because whenever you're doing something 10 20 30 times you're going to be a lot better at it than if somebody's coming into a new market they're looking at a new asset class there's just things that you don't know you know and you don't want to be in a situation where there's something that you don't know that's quite costly and across, you know, 200, 300 units, it could end up killing the deal.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's really well said, right? At the end of the day, when you're underwriting a transaction, it, it's really about taking those assumptions that, that make up the projections and looking at the underlying facts and saying, does this make sense? But you're never able to fully back up with a hundred percent certainty, you know, projections because they're forward looking, right? We just don't know. And we could say, you know, we believe your pro forma rents make sense because we've toured all the comp properties in a five mile radius. And, you know, if you renovate to this scope, we know that, you know, you can get those rents, right? We've looked at market reports, we've looked at affordability and demographic data, right? All those things can help you get to a point where you say, this makes sense. But at the end of the day, you still have to decide, hey, this is the direction we're going. And there is always a little bit of a leap of faith. And so you want to make sure you have partners who are the type that can handle whatever gets thrown at them? Because once the deal is acquired, what we projected is no longer relevant, right? We're all going to benchmark against what a deal was projected at, but it doesn't matter, right? Now we're we're in the game and and we're playing it with the cards that we've been dealt.
0: Yeah, we're on the field. We've got to start doing the actions to make sure that we can get that ball over the finish line, but at the same time, we had this whole plan going in and it doesn't matter because now it's live and the clock's ticking and it's time to do some work. So this has been really amazing. Uh, What I'd love to do is I'd love to dive into the growth rapid fire round where the questions are quick, but your answers really don't need to be. So I'd like to talk a little bit about success. How would you define success and what is success to you?
1: It's a good question. We always ask on our podcast about wealth, like what does wealth mean mean to you? And, And it's always interesting to hear how how people react. You know, for me, it was really about finding a place that I felt like could could become my own, you know, along with my, my partners, of course, right? And so I think more about the intangibles. I think about just kind of being involved in building something from the ground up. You know, the highs and lows that come with that because no entrepreneur or anyone who started a company will you know, telling you that there aren't some moments where your back is really against the wall, right? And you're fighting for your life. But those types of, of moments, at least for me, are invigorating. Like, I love to have my back against the wall. Like, it's not so much the case in, anymore. But during that build up period, uh, I absolutely loved it, right? Like, that's what what motivates me. And so, you know, success is, is really just kind of continuing on on this trajectory, right? It was, it was really about putting myself out there because I saw as an attorney, I, I worked on so many deals, a lot of people out there are doing really interesting things, raising a lot of money, being very you know, successful. And the key difference when I was sitting in my, my lawyer chair between me and them was that they put themselves out there. They took the risk, right? And so for me, it was about taking the risk and then you know, putting my time and energy behind something as, as we built it. That's how I ultimately think about you know, success for, for me, or at least how I internalize it.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And based on that definition, do you feel successful?
1: I'm not sure I'll ever actually feel successful. I think it's one of those things where, like, you can always be richer, right? And, you know, you hit certain milestones and thresholds, and an outside party may say, Hey, you guys have been doing great work. You're successful. But there's still a lot, you know, we're, we're trying to do. And, and as the firm continues to grow, you know, we plug into new avenues. Everyone on the team is very hungry. It's an important part of of, who we hire onto the team. And so, yeah, we're we're still working. So definitely not there yet.
0: Absolutely. Always got to be driving uh, towards something new. So from a habits perspective, what are some of those keystone habits, the things that you've done on a daily or weekly basis that have led to that foundation for success?
1: For me, a big part of it is is nutrition, exercise, getting good sleep, all the things that, you know, everyone will kind of tell you to do. Just being really smart about it too. And I, I'm not gonna sit here and say that I've done all this research on my own and, and I've created this you know, program for myself, it's great. But I have a lot of really smart friends. I have a younger brother who is a physician and I let them do that work in the same way we do the real estate evaluation work, you know, for, for their investments with us, right? And then I implement it into my life. And whether that's something like meditation, whether it's it's yoga, which I'm a huge proponent of, all those things to, to feel good, right? That at the end of the day is how I stay productive, feel as good as I possibly can. And over time, I've learned these are the ways to do it. And some, these are some of the ways that you don't do it. And you know you do more of the former than the latter over a long enough period of time, and it works out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I love that. So let's finish on this. From a purpose perspective, what drives you to live your best life every day?
1: You know, right now it's it's about kind of building alpha and, you know, putting it it on the map as as a, you know, a real kind of player in in this space, right? And and simultaneously building up the team around because you know when when you've got a relatively small team that you're building up, like everyone effectively becomes you know, a family, you know not to to be a cliche, right? But everyone's very close. Everyone is you know personally and financially invested, emotionally invested in in what we're doing. And so that's really a big part of, oh, I think what what drives me right now is like, let's let's do this. like we we've, we've put ourselves in position. we've spent, a good amount of time getting ourselves here, now's the time to execute, right? And yeah, for me, that's really what it's all about. You know, again, we're all really hungry. You know, we all come from middle-class families. We all are trying to get after it. And, you know, that's kind of the story of Alpha.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love meeting people who are really committed to what they're doing, who are driven, who are finding a way to create a better life and make an impact not only on the people they work with, but also the people they serve. So thanks for joining us today. It was really fun diving in and, and getting to know a little bit more about you. Uh, where can people find out more about you or get in touch?
1: Yeah, our, our website is Alpha I the letter i.com. Dot, dot we are a private group, right? We're not, you know, soliciting new investors, so to speak. But if you are interested in having a conversation, you know, you can reach out. I would just note that you saw me on this podcast there and, and I'll give you a call and we can chat about what we do.